Hello, everyone. Welcome to Power Up Women. I'm Ann Doyle. My co-host, Dana Harvey, will be back with us next week. Besides this podcast, I also host the monthly Game Changers podcast of the International Women's Forum. And that gives me the opportunity to share with you conversations with trailblazing women leaders, change agents, and pathfinders from across the globe. So today, you are about to meet Karina Funk. Have you ever heard the old business adage, profit or planet? Well, Karina is a leading voice and a proven expert that that is old thinking and dead wrong. You're going to love meeting Karina as much as I did. Enjoy. If you're in a boardroom, you're already sort of at a point in your career where you've made a lot of decisions that have built your reputation. Use that reputation is what I'll say to take career risks. Hello, everyone. Welcome to IWF Game Changers, a monthly conversation with some of the trailblazing members of the International Women's Forum. I'm Ann Doyle, president of IWF Michigan and your host. So let's talk about life in leadership. Our featured guest today is IWF Massachusetts member, Karina Funk who was named by Barron's as one of the 100 most influential women in finance. Karina is a partner with Brown Advisory, chair of their sustainable investing, and co-portfolio manager of their large cap sustainable growth strategy. She holds advanced degrees in civil and environmental engineering, technology and policy, and an undergraduate degree from Purdue University in chemical engineering. Karina and her portfolio partner are recognized experts in finding companies at the intersection of positive fundamental and sustainable business drivers. Welcome, Karina. Thank you, and so great to be here. That was a kind introduction, but it's an honor to be here. And it's all true. You know, the, the way it's described, finding companies at the intersection of positive fundamental and sustainable business drivers. I know that's your expertise. I know that's your personal passion, but in today's business environment, tell us what that means. The way to make money on companies that are doing wonderful things for society and the environment is to start with fundamentally strong companies in the first place. And so that's why my partner, David Powell and I, we only invest at that intersection of strong, long-term fundamentals and great business models and sustainability drivers over the long-term. So that could be companies that are uh, solving some of our most critical sustainability challenges or the companies that have done the hard work to just position themselves over the long-term. I mean, you don't have a sustainable business unless your customers are thriving over the long-term, unless your supply chain is say at minimum resilient to the physical effects of climate change. Uh, unless you're able to engage and attract top talent. And frankly, unless you, know, you, you a, a business has a management team that really understands you know, what it takes to thrive over the long-term, including everything that I mentioned, but also let's just acknowledge that you know, we're living in a, a time of increasingly unpredictable, 
volatile time. And that operating environment includes everything from you know political surprises, macroeconomic shocks, a health crisis. Yeah. That operating environment also includes the physical environment and all the associated resource constraints. So every sector of the economy has a role to play. As an investor, you can build a diversified portfolio at that intersection, like I said, of strong fundamentals and, and sustainability drivers. A lot of very enticing companies might fall away. Yes, you can make a buck investing in companies that harm humans' health and the environment. But over the long term, it's just at that intersection that I think are the most compelling investment opportunities available uh, in any asset class. Well, I know you've cared about this for a very, very long time, and, and maybe that takes us back to why you majored in chemical engineering, which isn't exactly the normal undergraduate career path beginning for someone in your position of global investing. How did it start there? Well, my personal interest, to be honest, comes from a lot of childhood experiences traveling to some truly beautiful and remote places in South America. A lot of my family is from Bolivia. It made an impression on me seeing environmental degradation, which later I learned is acid mine drainage and the ponding of metal tailings. I mean, you see this in the middle of some of the most pristine landscape, you know, mountains, valleys, uh, the Amazon river basin, and the, the human and social impacts also of things like child labor and poor working conditions. You know, this goes well beyond sort of the tourist experience, you know, of, of some of these countries. And as a kid, these impacts made me sad. But as I grew older, of course, I began to understand the nuances, for example, of providing livelihoods against the reality that there's no easy solution to the health and environmental problems that sometimes go hand in hand with, with economic development. And so, you know, thinking through that, uh, probably not in a very sophisticated way, I just wanted to be part of the solution and I loved science and math. And so mm -hmm. my first career was as an engineer. And, you know, it, it wasn't such a meandering path to investing uh, where I am now, because as an engineer, I noticed, I mean, I worked for large global companies, industrial companies actually. And I noticed when I was implementing things like pollution prevention, water conservation, energy efficiency, those were always material to the bottom line. Mm -hmm. They more often than not would improve the customer outcome. You could either improve product quality or help the customer with those same benefits of saving energy, saving water, saving resources, saving money. Saving money never goes out of style, you know, no matter <laughs> where we are in a right. macroeconomic cycle, or frankly, if you can spell the word sustainability. And so that really helped set my investment philosophy, that there are things that these large global companies can do to roll out these, you know, to either do the R&D or acquire it and roll out innovations at scale that really move the needle on environmental profiles around the world, on customer outcomes, on growth opportunities, and on a cost structure about you know, saving on, on the bottom line. So, so I got into investing by leveraging my technology background to do technology due diligence in the venture capital space. I was able to continue with my interest and expertise in environmental technologies because there was a need for, for that skill set. And it took me about six years to gradually work my way back up market cap. And I got my chartered financial analyst along the way because no one was gonna hire me as an engineer anymore, but I wanted to be in investing as well. So here I am. You've obviously cared about this for a very long time and were probably a lonely voice in the, in the finance world for a while. Do you see a change now 
in terms of, I mean, is ESG, and maybe explain what that is, a hot topic in the boardroom these days? Oh, yes. In the boardroom specifically? Absolutely. So yeah, uh, ESG, environmental social governance. That is a term that, I mean, frankly, some of these terms like impact investing, values alignment, social responsibility, these terms have evolved over time. Sometimes they've changed meaning and just to level set, it's not a homogeneous set. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to go about, you know, social responsibility or, or making an impact. You know, these are big strategic commitments that require big investments. So yes, there is increasing board level accountability, which in turn requires sustainability expertise right up there in the skills matrix, right, for, for corporate directors. And, you know, often I, I speak with, with board members, management teams, chief sustainability officers or, or other sustainability practitioners, and ideally they're all coordinated and on the same team, but, but too often, I think, still companies don't quite connect the dots. But as far as, you know, why is this important? I mean, think about, think about everything that a lot of us have been learning during this pandemic. If this is the first time that a lot of us are learning that we're all in this together, hmm. yeah. climate change is actually an earlier manifestation of that. You can't talk about climate change without understanding environmental justice or health issues or inequality. And so from, you know, from, from an, an investor lens, you know, we, we've long seen these connections. You know, these are important issues that really affect the strategy, forward prospects for growth, and, you know, just again, the long-term sustainability of a company. And so a board-level purview of these issues is absolutely, I think, appropriate and required because the sustainability lens, it certainly cuts across all aspects. You know, this shouldn't just be some, some, some sideshow. And I guess, you know, one thing I can say, because I know that listeners, you know, among the IWF definitely have, you know, director responsibility. Absolutely. We have many uh, members who are on public and private boards and obviously in very senior leadership roles in major organizations. What's your advice to them? If you're just getting started, I would say that um, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals are a great example of, of sort of a, a thought process to, to start going through. There are 17 of them, things like zero hunger, health and well-being, clean water, and sanitation. Go through those and ask which of these are risks to your business and which of these are opportunities because solving for some of these challenges and being resilient against some of those risks are some of the biggest opportunities for a durable business model and frankly, for competitive advantage. And the other thing I'll say is that what I mentioned before is that often board or the, and the management team and others that they don't quite connect the dots. And so one place to start is what are you saying? Like, what are your, what's, what does your publicly available information say about your actions on long-term sustainability? Again, in your own economic self-interest, this is about building a multi-generational business, right? And a firm. And so do your SEC disclosures align with your investment pitch? Do they align with your corporate social responsibility report? If, you, if you've written one, do they align with your website, your annual letter to shareholders? There is a real opportunity to connect the dots here. It brings me to the question of courage, really, because sometimes, I mean, for a long time, there was this old idea that it was profit versus planet. 
And you, to start raising these issues in a boardroom, I mean, if you are the only woman on that board or still most boards, I mean, we're, we're, we're less than 30%, which is where you start to really kind of get some influence there. What is your message to women about starting to open these conversations that can be not always very welcome in a boardroom? If you're in a boardroom, you're already sort of at a point in your career where you've made a lot of decisions that have built your reputation. Use that reputation is what I'll say to take career risks. I mean, it's going to take, let me, let me just broaden the, the question a little bit because making an impact is, is a big ambition <laughs> and mm -hmm. it'll take a lot of different approaches to move in the right direction. So, you know, whether you're, you're on a board or whether you're a senior executive, you, you might be creating technologies, you might be scaling them up, you might be seeding the market, you might be you know, providing investment services and advice. Whatever that job or role is, please continue to kick butt at it. And within that role, you can add value and be that person who positions your business and economic activity for that more sustainable future. Like I said, you don't have a sustainable business if your customers aren't thriving if your employees aren't engaged, and if you're not meeting the needs of changing consumer preferences over time. What about generational differences when it comes to investing? What are you seeing there? You know, I don't, I don't have third-party data off the top of my head, but I do have in my head a recent interview that one of my colleagues had with Alan Joke, the CEO of Unilever. Unilever, a company that's, you know, a large part generally of, of our everyday lives. Yeah. And and that is very well known, has built a reputation around their sustainability initiatives. And he was describing customers, the, the generational differences among customers, that baby boomers and, and you know, their preferences for sustainability, they, they may not even you know, pretend that sustainability drives their brand choices. Gen Xers may say, and, and I'm in that cohort, <laughs> we may say that, that sustainability drives that brand preference, but mm -hmm. actually it really doesn't drive purchasing behavior. Millennials, they do prefer sustainable brands, but they won't compromise on, on price or on quality or convenience. And then the Gen Zers, sustainability is the largest factor that drives brand choice. Wow. So again, you know, if, if you're not positioned towards the future of your company mm -hmm. and, and your future customers, you're missing a big opportunity. So I would say, you know, be comfortable taking career risks and sounding the alarm about being forward thinking and incorporating sustainability. And, you know, coming from someone who is judged daily by numbers alone, short-term thinking and things like short-term stock price alone does not recruit talent and customers for you. You have to think long-term. And use that data that you're saying about this significant generational change in this gigantic new generation that's very, very different. Absolutely. There, it's the right thing to do, but you don't just have to convince people of that. There's a lot of business data as to how you know, taking, taking sustainability risks and opportunities and adding capital to those opportunities, those are big opportunities for growth. And what's your advice to uh, individual investors? I mean, even those who may not be serving on corporate boards, but all of us, I mean, I think I've heard you say that all investing is impact investing. What's your advice about that? Well, let me just state how much we need individual investors and all investors to understand this. Those sustainable development goals that I mentioned, the UN estimates that we need between $5 trillion to $7 trillion a year 
to meet those goals by between now and, and 2030. So we need a lot of extra investment, you know, two to four trillion dollars a year actually towards those sustainable development goals. Now, while a large figure, that is a fraction of the 87 trillion dollars of gross world output. All right, so how do we create that impact with the capital markets? We are not going to get there. We are not going to get toward that more sustainable future unless we consider the biggest asset classes. And if you're listening to this podcast, you are very likely to have a 401k or some kind of stock and bond portfolio. Those are the biggest asset classes. All right. Mm. So you can think really hard about a sliver of your portfolio and whether you're having an impact or you can be more thoughtful with the much larger amounts of money uh, that you're allocating. There are many managers that have a five plus year uh, track record. We've been doing this for 11 years, but see the data. <laughs> there is no trade-off with performance if you pick a good manager. There's magazine articles, there's ratings and rankings of some of the top ESG funds, things like that. Ask your advisor if, if they know about any of those and what's their approach to impact or sustainability. And if they have good risk-adjusted returns, please explain to me why I wouldn't be using some of these strategies. And, and there's, there's plenty to choose from now. Mm-hmm. And just having those conversations, multiply that times thousands and millions of individual investors having those conversations. That's what you're saying. That's where some big impact can happen. Conversations with your advisor, with your at your cocktail party when we have them again, <laughs> at you know on the boards that you sit at, the nonprofit boards, the foundations that you sit on. It's just starting to raise awareness, and and there's data that you, that you can rely on that that might be pretty darn convincing. You know, Karina, we could talk with you for another hour easily about all this, but I want to make sure we get a chance to ask you about the fact that even today. It is very, very rare for a woman to be, um, you know, at the levels that you are in terms of the financial world. And many of our listeners are still, we know what it is to be the lonely leader there. So what have you learned and what would you share about the whole experience still of being a woman in a leadership role in the business world? I mean, there's many, many career and industry areas where, where women are, are underrepresented and there's a lack of senior empowered role models. But definitely the composition today is very, very different than, than when I entered the field. I'm sure you and our listeners have noticed that too. But yeah, in, in, particular, in investment management, women are still very underrepresented. And, and I'm fortunate to, to have a great time working with other women as partners and developing the next generation in my office as well. And I think that those of us in leadership positions can help women understand what's possible for them uh, as they consider you know, finance or, or another field. And I understand that as part of my responsibility. And I think that we need to create the culture and convince women that they can have a very successful, impactful and rewarding career in these leadership positions. And, and in my case, in, in finance. And you know, I have to say though, that the, the reality is that today the large majority of decision makers, maybe especially in finance, are male. So the best way to create change is for those men to support women in their careers. And I'm extremely, extremely fortunate to have had that support from an early mentor in in impact investing to my current partner on this strategy to my CEO. But this means not just hiring women, but promoting them too. And so uh, developing women to take on senior ranks includes, you know, I think that, you know, a culture has to insist on a supportive 
framework that, you know, that, that prioritizes a reasonable work-life balance and allows talent to have priorities outside of work, you know, male or female, right? And so for me, my family, and, and especially my husband, is the biggest factor in my success. And motherhood has given me even more passion, more focus, and even more purpose. My motherhood, what do you mean by that? Look, motherhood, like I said, it's, it's about focus. You know, you want to do well. And, and actually, there's data that supports this. There's, there's data that supports that women, or, or that actually parenthood actually creates more focus and greater productivity for business purposes as well. Because we want to do well by our careers, by our firms, by our customers, and by our families. So that kind of focus has been instrumental. And let me just say that wouldn't it be silly for employers not to tap into that ambition and that motivation and that firepower that I think a lot of people listening to this podcast have. I love your firepower. Is there anything you would like to say that you didn't get a chance to? You know, I just want to thank the uh, International Women's Forum. It's been a great network. I, I, I benefited from the IWF Leadership Foundation Fellows Program. It was a fantastic experience. And, you know, from someone with a job that is, you know, very analytical and, and a lot about numbers, and yet I had the just the, the vision that sustainable investing, at least at my firm, is, is way bigger than just my strategy. A lot, it's a lot of the IWF support and, frankly, training that helped me take on new leadership positions and you know, to, to actually hopefully make some progress towards a bigger ambition, which is not just you know, my career, my firm, our strategy, but raising the bar on what I think everyone can expect from sustainable investing. You know, sustainability is not a special case. It's an imperative. Well, you've inspired me. I'm going to call my advisor immediately as soon as we finish this. Thank you so much, Karina, for being with us. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, IWF Massachusetts member Karina Funk, partner and chair of Sustainable Investing with Brown Advisory and a respected and influential voice for why sustainable investing is smart investing. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Game Changers, a monthly conversation with the trailblazing members of the International Women's Forum. I'm Ann Doyle. Join us again as we talk about life in leadership. Thanks for joining us at Power Up Women. I hope you will subscribe and share us with your networks. And remember, power is the currency for getting things done. Claim yours and put it to work. I'm Ann Doyle.